Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 45. I can't believe we made it that far, Travis. For some reason, we've got them fooled or nobody's listening. I don't know, but we've made it 45 interviews. And this one is awesome. It's just awesome. That's the only way I know how to explain it. It's with Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame broadcaster Jim Ross. And like a lot of you guys, he's one of those guys that was a soundtrack voice of my youth. When I was a kid, man, we it was appointment viewing to watch NWA wrestling with the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express and Flair and Dusty Rhodes and all of those guys that we loved so much. Still do for that matter. Uh, and I've long admired Jim Ross. And as you'll hear in the interview in a moment, I, it was amazing to meet him last fall on the way to a college football game. I had Oklahoma and UCLA and he climbs on the airplane and hits me on the arm. And he said, how you doing, buddy? I about fell out of my seat and I wore him out for the entire flight to Oklahoma City about uh, his time and his experience and any advice he could give me and all those things because there's a feeling that nostalgic moments produce within you that are very rare and they're fleeting when you're an adult. And when they hit you, it's just so special. And uh, some of those moments certainly were spending times with my buddies, Bones and Joe Bear and Scotty and all those guys sitting around my house on Saturday mornings and watching NWA wrestling and listening to Jim and those guys narrate that for us. So to get to spend this time with him is unbelievable. Look, I fancy myself as a storyteller. It's my favorite part of my job is having the blessing of diving into people's lives and hoping I can ask something that offers a piece of them that maybe you didn't know. And this dude right here is as good a storyteller as there's ever been. And maybe I just love his Oklahoma accent. I don't know. But I could sit and listen to old JR tell stories all day long. And trust me, even if you don't love wrestling, you're going to love this interview. And if you do love wrestling, buckle up. It's a great one. Here's my interview with Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame broadcaster Jim Ross. All right, guys, I don't really even know where to start with JR. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer who's forgotten more than I'll ever know, ever see. I can't imagine the things he's seen, the things he's experienced. And I will start by saying uh, last fall I had the Oklahoma-UCLA game in Norman. And I get on my airplane in Charlotte to fly to Norman, Oklahoma. I guess Oklahoma City, as it were. And uh old boy walks on the plane, says hello. And I did a quadruple take. I couldn't believe it. It was my man, JR. First of all, it was awesome to to meet you that day and whatnot. But uh it blew my mind that you even know who, knew who I was. <laughs> I enjoy your work, man. Uh, I can... I want a few people on earth that can understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're like an alien. You're like a, a unicorn. There's only a few of us who understand this very foreign suspect language that we speak. <laughs> I really don't even know where to start. Uh, in looking through your career before this interview, it's just tremendous, everything that you've experienced and all of that. So I'm going to start with the good old days, and I want the craziest story from those mid-80s, even late-70s, all the way through the early-90s NWA days, I want the craziest story we've never heard that you feel is uh, suitable to tell. That's a tough uh, checkoff list there, Marty. One I've never told and that you can tell. (laughs) 
There's a lot of them I haven't told publicly that you can't tell, unfortunately. Look, the wrestling business is back when I got started in the mid-70s. It's like being, you know, my dad said when my boys ran away and joined the circus and never came home. And there was a little bit to that. You know, it's kind of a traveling uh, carnival-like uh, thing and you know, smoky old VFW halls and stuff. Well, it's changed a lot since then, as we all know. But we had a pair of twins, the McGuire twins. I think they're from down south somewhere, South Carolina, somewhere. Billy and Benny McGuire, the world's largest twins. And folks, you can look it up, Google it, as the kids say. Uh, one way six sixty, one way six forty. I had no idea if that's true or not. Or how in the hell would you weigh them? So uh, they wanted to quit. They got beat up in a match, but they won. And they weren't very tough guys in the show business art of wrestling. So they're going to quit. And for them to stay, and because they were the main attractions, I had to go in the shower and uh, and wash their back. So I'm in the shower with two naked six hundred plus pound twins. They were crying and, and trying to comfort each other, and I'm washing their back. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to, get, I'm going to make sure I don't screw this booking up, but, but for the love of God, if this doesn't make a scene in a movie someday, there ain't no such thing because stuff like that happened all the time with these people. What's that like when you have to wear that many hats? Because all of us who, you know, certainly people my age, I'm in my early 40s, and you guys are just legends to us because that was our youth. Growing up and watching NWA wrestling on Saturday mornings is our youth. And I, I just – I imagine you – we all know you as the voice of wrestling, but you, I imagine, had to wear so many hats. Outside of washing people's backs, what were some of the other odd hats you had to wear? Well, I was on the ring crew. I all the ring because I had a – I had a vehicle that would uh, that had a trailer hitch, so that qualified me to be on the ring crew. Uh, I was a referee. I was a ring announcer. I was a play-by-play man. I was in charge of television syndication. I was director of marketing. Uh, oh, I, you know, I was the I, my first job was 125 a week was as a driver for our promoter Leroy McGurk there in Tulsa, who was totally blind. So I was his driver, and I never even sat in a Cadillac, much less driven one. So there's stories to go along with that, too, like the time he, he set himself on fire because he forgot to flip his ash on a cigar, and it burnt through his J. Mar Sansevelt down into the, the private region, and it was quite the scenario when he's slapping on me, and I'm going 65. He don't understand why he's, why he's burning. It's a, hell, it's, a, it's a comedy of errors, to say the least. I wrote about that in my first book as, as best I could. How many books have you done? Well, I did two cookbooks. I've done uh, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's uh, biography, and I've done this last one that's called Slobberknocker, My Life in Wrestling. Uh, it's been uh, in the top two or three of, at Amazon's for about two years now in the category, and now we're working on the sequel to the Slobberknocker, which is just a continuation of my story. And that story's going to change a lot. You know, Marty, that story's going to change a lot. You know, I've got, I got a, lot of, a lot of interesting times coming up my WWE contract ends after 26 years at the end of March. I think March 29th to be exact. So, you know, there's a decisions about what I'm going to do after that because the last thing I'm going to do is my last thing I'm going to retire and do what? You know, I, I, just, I don't have I have nothing to do that I enjoy doing better than work. What do you want to do? Well, I think you go back to you revert back to what brought you to the dance and you know being a, being a, a narrator. Uh, you know, being the soundtrack or something. It's something I've, I wanted to do since I was a little kid, listen to, you know, uh, Kurt Gowdy and Ray Scott and those dudes. So uh, that's kind of in my blood. And, 
and I'm and I you know my kids are grown. I'm, a, I'm an empty nester. They're by myself, widower. I want to work, man, and I want to travel, and I want to stay busy, and I want to show the world that just because you're 67, you're damn sure not too old to tell stories. No, you're never too old to tell stories, and it's a beautiful talent. I um, it's funny you say that. I just um, I'm in the process of finishing my first book now as well, and it's been such a unique process for me because I've been so blessed to meet so many different amazing people like yourself. How many Hollywood types are coming after you about making that book a movie? Well, there's there's been an interest in it. Uh, there has definitely been interest in it. Um, and uh, you know, it's introduced to a lot of people. I just got back from L.A. Uh, a week ago. I did a, a part in a movie, Paradise City. That's the name of this movie. I play a uh, somewhat slow, slow to dinner table, a CPA named uh, uh, Ben or something. Uh, I played, I guess, what I look like. Uh, Ned, oh, I played Ned. I said, this is perfect. Ned, the first reader, nobody's going to understand that but me. Uh, so I played Ned in this movie, and uh, I, I think that some of these have got some uh, shelf life, these uh, these stories, because getting into the second book, I'll be talking about the Monday Night Wars and the XFL, original XFL, uh, all through the 80s, uh, and with a lot of names, The Rock and Austin and McMahon and all these people that, that the average Joe is familiar with. So uh, it'll, I think it's going to have a it's going to have a good run, we hope. Interesting you mentioned the XFL. That's kind of on my list of, of topics, too. What an interesting moment that was. Well-conceived, but not that well-executed. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we didn't play good football. That's one thing. But the the idea of having a uh, pro league in the spring isn't a bad idea. Uh, the, the NFL should embrace it. But, they don't have to go and fund an operation in Europe to be able to scout players. They're right in front of them, right here on somebody else's dime. Uh, the, I think the thing that uh, Vince did, McMahon did, that was he hired uh, Oliver Luck to be the head honcho, and it's a real football guy. And they gave him more than six or eight weeks to put the league together. So I think they got a chance. And, you know, hell, there's always a, a – People want content, content. Content is king. We all know that. Yeah. And all of our different levels. Content is king. And so they're going to find a, a home, a TV home for that football product. Uh, you, can, you can bet your last dollar on it. So uh, we'll see how it goes. they got to play good football. And, and hopefully my buddy Bob Stoops in Dallas, so if that team will be, will be representative, you hope. What went wrong with the XFL the first time around? Well, it tried to be a, a, a football version of Monday Night Raw. You know, Monday Night Raw is killing it. You know, uh, we had Monday nights where we had quarter-hour ratings that were higher than the ratings head-to-head with the NFL. Uh, they had a, they have a slow game. We had a hot hot something going on. Uh, more people watch Raw than watch NFL, which maybe was the beginning of the end of a civilization. I'm not sure. They're trying to be too much like the TV show, risque, edgy. Uh, it wasn't organic. Edgy's great if it's real. Uh, attitudinal is fine if it's if it's not uh, contrived. The audience is too smart nowadays for that for that other stuff. So I think uh, they didn't have we didn't have good football. And uh, you know, hell, I worked with Ventura, I worked with Jerry Lawler, and then the most fun I had was working with Dick Buckus and Dan uh, Dan. Uh, uh, oh God, uh, from Arkansas, Dan Hampton. Our pregame, uh, you love it. Well, you might not love it because you're probably a smarter young man than me. Half a pint of Crown Royal and a uh, my board, 
they never made a board and they never took a note. OJR had it done, and I also bought the whiskey. So we always had a good free game and had fun doing the games. <laughs> Tell me a good Dan Hampton story. That dude was a wild beast, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. But let me tell you something. Uh, the guy that's re- revered is Buckus. Man. I mean, Hampton even kind of opened the door and stick his head to make sure everything is cool. You know, Buckus is the guy. <clears throat> Hampton, Hampton has no fear. and no, Hampton has no governor. I mean, nothing. He is just uh, – he's, he's reminds me one time I was drinking with Bill Fralick and Brett Favre in Atlanta in about 91. And we're hitting it pretty hard. And I told Brett, I said, Brett, you're trying like hell, buddy, but you ain't going to be able to drink all the Crown Roll in Atlanta. You just can't. I said, me and Frederick have already tried it. It ain't going to happen. So uh, things like that, these guys, like you said, you, you chance to meet somebody. It's kind of a cool deal. You make a friend. You hear some stories. And, and life goes on. Brett, it's interesting you use the you were discussing authenticity about the XFL. Brett Favre has long been one of my favorite athletes ever. And on a lot of levels, he just has some characteristics that remind him of me of my daddy and whatnot. Even though he's not nearly as old as my father, he has some some mannerisms and philosophical approaches to things that remind me of my dad. And he just raised hell, man. Like I love that about him. I what what was it like to to be around him when the lights weren't on? Free spirit, man. Loved the uh, he was. Seemed to be amazed that he was there and uh, kind of like he was floating through uh, time and space because he wasn't going to play, which is a big mistake that Jerry Glanville made uh, on that on that particular issue. And the team knew it. Players knew it. But they couldn't convince the powers of B to give Brett a chance. One of the most prominent things I remember him doing, I was talking to him, and he was kneeling in the end zone. And uh, I was standing in the end zone. He was down ahead, and he was t- had taken a knee. The ball bounces near him. He reaches out and grabs the ball. Andre Risen is cutting across the field at about the 50 and fires on a knee and rifles it like an arrow from his knee in the end zone to the 50-yard line and catches Risen in stride. And I said, I think I just saw the damnest thing I've ever seen in my life. But that's – he was – and here's the deal. I was in awe to him of just another throw to somebody. It's what he does. He he is another one of those guys that had no definition of what's what's what is the limit for me. I don't have any. That's kind of how he and everything in life was kind of that way for him for a while there. Oh, absolutely, it was. And another one of your buddies, Flair, was the same way. I adore Ric Flair. I don't know how the man's alive. How is he alive? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's or it's just a. After God, really, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm telling you the truth here. I, I don't know have the background to be a, a, a minister or anything, but it's got to be divine intervention. Airplane crashes, intensive care, comas. It's just, he ain't supposed to be here. He was never supposed to get out of the, the water uh, there in, in, I guess, in Tampa area where all those, those guys got killed and, and you know, he, he uh, broke his back in the airplane crash. So he's walked away from some dandies. And car wrecks. He lives every day for the day, and, and you know the old deal was back in back in in the, in the old days. You know, Rick was making great money, but he made he made ten grand a week, which in the seventies is pretty good change. If he made ten grand a week. He'd spend fifteen. That was nature boy's math. Just live a little bit f- faster than your motor should travel, and he was always on edge. So uh, I think his new wife and 
him living in Atlanta, and he just turned 70 this past week, uh, is maybe slowed down a little bit on that regard. I know he's not drinking anymore, except the occasional glass of wine. I don't know what that means. I don't know how big those glasses are. And I don't know what your definition of occasional is. I'm told he has an occasional glass of wine. As long as he's doing that, oh, Nate should be around a few more years, I think. He fascinates me uh, more than most. And the 30 for 30 on him that Rory Karf did was so well done. And uh, a lot of us learned a lot about Rick during that. And we got a sense of how crazy he is. Why don't you give us your sense of some things you experienced flying around all over the world with those guys and with him specifically? We were flying to uh, Europe from the United States, the team, administrators and McMahons and a whole bunch. I was the EVP in charge of the talent roster. And I hear there's a little, little rhubarb in the back, so it, we're at 35,000 feet. And the immersive exit row is uh, Brock Lesnar and Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning wrestling, for real. Uh, somebody else had their hair cut. Somebody else had their eyebrows cut off. And there's Nate uh, with nothing on but his alligator shoes and socks, his robe, and an erection uh, on the airplane. And, of course, that was a lawsuit after the flight attendants, I think, had a little lawsuit there. and uh, wasn't good. It wasn't, we all didn't make good decisions that night. But uh, that if you look around that airplane, like, a, like you know those old pictures where you used to go to those gas stations and those dogs are playing poker? Yep. You, you, you could do the same thing in the back of that airplane. Uh, you could just see all those people in their seats doing whatever the hell they were doing. Most of it wasn't good. Uh, and uh, it was just a, the damnedest thing. But there was Nate in full bloom around all the chaos. It's like it's like having bullets being shot everywhere, like a live ammunition, ding, ding, ding. And there's Nate smiling. So never a dull moment. It just cracks me up. It just it it cracks me up. He, he, he's he the, he's the, the best. best. He's the greatest. I, I never got to meet Dale Earnhardt. I never got to meet, you know, uh, uh, some of these guys. I never got to meet John Wayne. Rick Flair's one of those guys. That in the, I met Muhammad Ali and spent three days with him one time. That was a huge honor. I blew that deal because I should have taken notes and recorded something because I had complete access to him for three days. What were you guys and doing? That, uh, he was, believe it or not, after uh, he was promoting a wrestling event for Bill Watson, Superdome. He was going to be in somebody's corner and uh, against the other guy uh, who had somebody in his corner. So, uh, you know, it's one of those angles, storylines, sell tickets. And so we spent, we went down there and did media. It was quite the deal. Hung out. I was the door answer. He, he, all these ladies found out where we were staying. It's amazing how that happened. It was just, <laughs> he was, I would tell you, there's Rick Flair. And then there's, there's one other guy named Muhammad Ali that just, had the same tendencies. No no limits, no motor, no bedtime. Absolutely amazing. Almost killed like me. It. How do you almost kill you? Just uh, over time? Cumulative oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I got to sleep sometime, man. <laughs> Vince McMahon told me years ago that sleep is our enemy. He believes that this very day, that sleep is our enemy. So uh, we never talked about sleep around him because he didn't like talking about it because he didn't like going to sleep. It felt like it was a waste of time. <clears throat> so, uh, but this old fat boy likes a little nap every now and then. <laughs> I love me a nap too now. It, you were mentioned Dale Earnhardt, and he really was kind of John Wayne and Elvis all wrapped up into one American badass. And 
Flair definitely has that same zeal. And I'm of the mind that Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, we just, uh, we just did this huge documentary. I was a part of this documentary on Fox Sports about the Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt rivalry and how it just exploded NASCAR into mainstream American consciousness. And not only the fan base, but corporate America. How would you describe, I kind of feel like as a fan, I feel like Dusty and Flair, like Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, their rivalry and their relationship mm-hmm. had that same impact on NWA wrestling. That's my opinion. What, what do you think about that? I can see that. I can see that. Uh, Dusty having the uh, the intimidator, Dale Earnhardt, look coarse, look grittier side. I never, I never looked at uh, Jeff Gordon as gritty or blue collar. He just didn't. He didn't. That, that didn't resonate from that persona right. to that to those qualities. And that's not a negative on the guy. I'm just saying he would be more the, you know, the, little, the smoother side of the probably Flair and Jeff Gordon, Dusty, and and uh, the Intimidator there. What was uh, Dusty like? Yeah. Well, he was a. He was another bigger than life hero. He was another. He was he, now Dusty probably of all the wrestlers that I've ever been around was probably the closest to John Wayne of any of them because he was a real free spirit. You know, he just had a he had his he had his way about he had a way gift of gab. He had a way with words. He, some a lot of me just made up on the fly. You know, I've done I've done live broadcasts with him where he'd be talking about something. He said I, I studied my repetenda. And I said, after we go to commercial, I said, what the hell is a repetenda? I don't know. He just makes, things, makes words up as you go along. And, you know, you say, okay, uh, yeah, that's another one of Dusty's repetenda lines. So, but he was just, a, you know, he, 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 he was easy to pinpoint who he was. He was the son of a, of a plumber, mm-hmm. you know, little from Austin. You know, he got in wrestling, and he, he, he's perfect for this business. He was, you know, he wanted to be a pro ball player. He wanted to play baseball. Uh, you know, he was a good baseball player, and he played football in college, but he, but he couldn't go to class. Or he, he, put it this way, he wouldn't go to class, so he went to a lot of schools. And then until a wrestling found him, and it was a hell of a deal for him. He was he was the voice of the people for many, many years. He's what Steve Austin replaced as far as being the blue-collar voice of pro wrestling, except when Austin came along, it was just a much bigger social media window uh, to harvest from. And that's what these guys that are smart are doing now. They're They've mastered uh, social media. Well, that's when I first got in the business. The only thing these guys mastered was uh, drinking whiskey or something. Drinking whiskey and promos. Who yep. was the best promo man back in the day, and what's the best promo you ever saw? Dusty and uh, uh, Flair are the best. Because the, the deal was, back in those days, you may run 10 or 12 or 14 live events. That's not an exaggeration, folks. Live events. Where those live events came its own set of promos for, that would air in that market on the local television station. So uh, you did promos all week. You did dozens of promos a week around the loop. And so you got practice, practice, practice. And that's what made Flair and Dusty so damn good because they didn't have any writers. They didn't have any uh, assistant directors. They didn't have any production assistants. None of that existed. You made up your own stuff. You had to have the... Who you wrestling? What buildings it in? And, what, and the date and the time. That's all you got. Then go out there and tell a story. And Dusty and Flair would draw from their own experiences of the last 24, 48 hours, read that into a story, and it was just brilliant. It was just like more programming, only it was like a little infomercial. They were absolutely amazing at it. They were like a lyricist. I've always said, you know, 
my job as a, as a kid from Oklahoma watching wrestling, been a fan, getting to broadcast it, is a, is a dream deal. It really is because the, the wrestlers are the musicians and the, and, the, and the guys like me are a lyricist. So all we had to do was come up with some lyrics on the, the music we heard or we felt or we saw and put the right narrative to that. That's always been the, the match that I love to participate in most of all. What were your childhood dreams? Well, I wanted to be I wanted to be a, a football broadcaster. I wanted to be the voice of the Oklahoma Sooners since I was about seven, and uh, I never made it. Did that one year XFL. I did some college football uh, at my small college, Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, uh, back in the seventies. I was always around it, and then that XFL thing. I did the I did the Falcons in '92, the year they went to the Georgia Dome. So uh, then I went to WWE and moved. So I was I was not. Uh, the neighborhood any longer in Atlanta, so uh, I got to one year out of it. I loved it. But it was, uh, I, I was a big, uh, I was the only child, man. I read my ass off. I read, read, read. I listened to radio. You know, we had three channels on television and, and a radio. So the ra- I heard it the radio more often than not. So that was my deal. And I listened relentlessly. KMOX out of St. Louis, uh, two old dudes named uh, uh, Harry Carey and Jack Buck. Oh, yeah. Not bad to listen to if you want to learn how to do that business. Because they told you a story. I knew how blue the sky was or how many stars are in the sky every night when the, when the lights came on. As an only child, were you a loner? I mean, what what, what was your relationship like with you, with your buddies or with your parents? Did you spend a lot well, of time? Well, we lived out in the down country, you know, so it wasn't like uh, it, it was the kids were on the block and, we, you know, they drove by like one of those TV commercials and everybody was on their bicycle. <laughs> I, I, lived a, I lived a mile. Of, I, was, I was about, uh, God almighty, I was probably – three or four or five miles from my nearest neighbor. So that neighbor thing kind of flew out of the window until the people got driver's license. And then when we got our driver's license, the last damn thing we want to do is stay home. So, you know, that's the, how that worked. But, no, I wasn't a loner. I, I had, you know, I was social, but there just wasn't nobody to be social with. That's like the old expression, you know, I got plenty of lead in my pencil with nobody to write to. That's kind of where that works, you know. So. Uh, I, I liked, I played ball. I did, you know, I did everything to get off that farm. I was in every club, played in every team. Uh, so I was on the go all the time. Much of my father's chagrin. I can relate to that too, man. I grew up on a cattle farm myself and I tell everybody all, when, when any time I took my daughter today to see the Charlotte Hornets play the Portland Trailblazers. And people are so nice, man, You, we love this, we love that. I'm like, I'm just so blessed to do it. Uh, do we run around a lot? Is it a lot of hours? I was just talking to my producer, Travis, about this before he called you. Yeah, it's some hours, but it ain't work. It's better than no. working for a living. I can tell you that. Growing up on that farm, I know what that's all about. I don't want to haul no more hay. All the boys out there listening to the haul hay. hay, God, God bless you. I don't pick I up any more rocks. single day in the summer. Awful. Yeah, Picking up rocks out of the field was the worst. Yeah, it's just so, it's so, it felt so senseless, <laughs> you know. So it uh, until it, it got it was a Baylor, and your granny smacked you across the ass because you didn't get that one rock that got tore up the Baylor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> should have seen it, not paying attention. Why did you leave the NWA for the WWF? Well, I, it was just a, it was going moving up to the. Uh, it's like going from some league to the NFL. Mm-hmm. It's like going from uh, you know some uh, somebody on uh, some big cable operation. Uh, you know, or if, you, if you're here with Fox or ESPN, if you're in that world, you're kind of there. 
Now, how you how you finagle and move around within that world is up to you and, and the higher ups. But once you're at either Fox or, or ESPN, you're kind of there in that world, it seems like. And in my world of wrestling, uh, WWE was the destination, the most money, the most notoriety. You know, so the, it was a great thing for me because uh, I was there when the company was really uh, struggling in the mid '90s. And I became the VP of talent relations, started recruiting talents, got very lucky on signing some big time players. Uh, and then the company went public as a result of a lot of that success. And then the administrators that were there then already got stock options and grants. Ooh, so nice. I got rich in a, in a, on a day that I didn't even realize I got rich on. I had no idea how that stock thing worked because I never owned a stock in my entire life. But I got enough stock to, uh, take care of me the rest of my days thanks to Mr. McMahon. So uh, it's been a really unique run considering what wrestling was when I got in it and where it's, how it's evolved, what it's evolved to. You said you got lucky on some talent right there. Who'd you get lucky on? Well, Vince never wanted me to hire Mick Foley, and so I, I convinced him that was a good move, and it was. I got lucky there. Uh, you know, I hired The Rock. I hired uh, John Cena. Hi, Randy Orton. Hi, Rock Lesnar. Uh, all in the same class. And, oh, Dave Batista, too, was in that group. Uh, you know, so Edge and Christian, a lot of those kids, We it's like going out and recruiting players. It's like if this kid's a five-star, he's a three-star. He's a, what are you looking for? What makes a star in wrestling? How does a guy become the Rock or Lesnar or Stone Cold? How do you become a global icon what are you looking well, for as a guy that says that's the guy? Well, it's a very simple uh, and probably a, not a very uh, shiny answer, but reliability. It's real simple. If I can't depend on you to do everything that I want you to do or everything that you're committed to do, and I have to guess on both sides of that equation, then we can't do business. If uh, you're not reliable, well, you're going to make sure that you're not going to, uh, you're going to take every precaution to make sure the p- person you're with doesn't leave that ring in a wheelchair. Are, you know, are you reliable to pay attention to the safety procedures that have to be there, or are you prepared to have somebody's uh, immobility on your conscience the rest of your life? Reliability is a whole everything. You can't manufacture it. The it factor, that that intangible, that's you know, odorless, smell, it's whatever. You can't manufacture it. The talents either got it or they do not. You got to look at what's real, what's real, what's in front of you. I can measure. Reliability is one of those things. Uh, and I, I, well, I think we're past the pale of you got to be 6'2", you've got to be 240, you got to look like The Rock or look like John Cena, not necessarily anymore. That's not, that's not the way that it is. I don't need no chicken-eating dog in the damn chicken house. So uh, we good people, quality, get them the right training. Look, we're, we're, I recruited Kurt Angle. He, was a, he won the Olympic gold medal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not recruiting Ham and Eggers here. We're good guys, athletes. Lesnar, D1 champion. He's done pretty well. Who was an it guy that surprised you that they were an it guy? Who had a better personality and resonated more than you expected them to? Adam Copeland, who's was Edge, the Edge part of Edge and Christian. Yep. He's doing some acting now on the History Channel, and he's got a podcast, too, with his partner. Kind of surprised me. I always I unfairly pigeonholed him to be a tag team guy forever. It's like the Rock and Roll Express. You can't kind of hardly see Ricky without Robert around, or vice versa. They just go together. 
the old tag team that they're so famous in the NWA. I thought the, the Edge and Christian would be the same thing, but uh, Edge was able to spin off and become a, a, a huge star on his own, and that kind of surprised me in a very pleasant way. He took he took ownership of his new persona, and he marketed it very, very shrewdly using the WWE's machinery and made himself on the, on the road to a bunch of money. I'm asking you a bunch of really broad questions here that are very hard to answer without much thought, and I'm, I'm putting you on the spot after spot after spot, so forgive me, but it's just a fascinating sport to me. Which wrestler do you believe had the most impact on the sport's explosion when it went from regional to global? Yeah, probably in that that era, Hogan probably was the guy because Hogan got crossover appeal. Uh, Hogan was, you know, exposure on network television. Uh, Hogan's hot, being hot, timely, having the, the it factor, all those things. Uh, you know, he's the guy that headlined the return of pro wrestling to network television when uh, WWE started doing their Saturday Night's main event in, in rotation with Saturday Night Live. So uh, that was huge, really huge. I wasn't even working at WWE at that time. It, it helped our business get better because it just created a much more keen awareness of the, the genre itself. And and where a lot of towns had no pro ball team parties, you know, such in the South. Sure. They didn't have a pro ball team. They had wrestling a lot of them. And wrestling was the same night every week someplace. And that was a, that was their sports franchise, believe it or not. As as badly as some critics would hate to admit that, it's a fact. It is a you fact. know, at one time, wrestling was about as big in Charlotte as anything else in town. No Before the basketball and all that good stuff, the Panthers and everything. So it's just amazing how long it's lasted and how well it's, how healthy it is. How do you describe the hysteria that you walked into every night in those arenas here in Charlotte, I live in Charlotte. Here in Charlotte, or all around the Southeast, it was coming unglued at the seams. Some of those arenas were. Well, it's. Uh, I always compare it to NASCAR to a lot of degrees. You know, I mm-hmm. NASCAR is either really, really smart on what they show us civilians out here in the hinterlands, <laughs> uh, or they're just really lucky because every piece of footage I see of NASCAR uh, crowd shots show people standing up or swinging their arms or yelling or uh, being involved, being emotionally invested into what they're participating with. And I kind of think that's kind of the, how I look at the wrestling audience when wrestling is really hot. It's really good. You get some of the same tendencies you get at a, at a red hot, uh, at a NASCAR race where it's hot weather, it's, the sun is shining and uh, it's noisy and it's wonderful. So, uh, I, I, I kind of think there's a kinship there. Uh, it's unrivaled, uh, uninhibited uh, enthusiasm. To me, wrestling is a sport. To others, it is a soap opera. What is wrestling to you? It's entertainment. Uh, I don't. I can't call it a sport because if anybody would like for it to be a sport, it's me. When I call the matches, uh, I call the matches as if it is a. 100 uh, percent up and up on the level mainstream sport because I want to suspend your disbelief and not insult your intelligence uh, by being in that mindset or trying to say something that's not there. Uh, so I, I, it's an entertainment product largely done by athletes who do their own stunts, and uh, the 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 outcomes are predetermined, uh, but the 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 path to the to the finish line is. Uh, is not fake. 
uh, somebody, they know how to fall, which is one thing. Don't say that at a dinner, at a supper table, or at a party, because you're just what ignorant. Well, they know how to fall. Somebody asked that one time when somebody fell off a ladder at 20 feet high. Now, how they, I saw they go to that 20-foot high ladder school. You know, they're in the phone book. Let's look it up. They'll teach you how to fall off 20-foot ladders. You idiot. So, uh, you know, just no. So, uh, but it's a, I'd say it's a, uh, it's an entertainment entity with the, uh, with the athletes, uh, portraying themselves and with no extra, no stuntmen. It's all, all, all rock and roll there. So, but it, I can't say it's a sport because of the predetermined outcomes. That's fair. Maybe I shouldn't think it's a sport either. I just, uh, I damn love it. I do. I love it. Last one. What is the greatest match you've ever called, and what happened in that match? Great's a really unique term, and I don't know exactly what your definition of great is. My mind changes daily. I don't know about you. Mine changes sometimes by the hour, uh, depending on what I'm talking about or talking who I'm talking with. Uh, but I think most memorable. We, we, then, well, the the wrestle the the one that I get the most reaction about is when the Undertaker threw Mick Foley off the hell in a cell. Because I get people, I got T-shirts about my T-shirts about that. What I said, all kinds of crap. But the one that really stands out for being an amazing journey, how we we navigated it, was in Toronto at the uh, at the Sky Dome, sold out crowd, seventy something thousand. I'm thinking, uh, sea of humanity for Hogan and Rock that didn't even go on last. It went on third to the last because nobody predicted that it would be nothing other than Hogan was the villain with the NWO and Rock was the hero, uh, the people's champion. But when uh, they got in the ring, and we knew it coming out, of their, out on their introductions, that something wasn't quite right, uh, the audience slipped on us. And they cheered Hogan, and they booed the Rock. They booed the Rock only because they wanted to cheer Hogan, because Rock had done nothing wrong. Uh, and and they, the Hogan thing, I think, was like, a reuniting of the band. You know, I've always said, you know, every time I see something happen, like poor old Glenn Fry got passed away, I always said, I want to go see the Eagles one more time. Mm-hmm. And so they got to see Hogan in his heyday one more time there in that WrestleMania 18. And uh, so we, everything that we had mentally prepared ourselves for, Jerry Lawler and I, we just uh, kind of tore that script up, so to speak. It wasn't a script, and this went on about our business. So, in other words, we narrated what we saw, and we provided lyrics to what we heard. And it was quite the story. What did you learn that night? Well, don't think you're smarter than your audience, because we ain't. I love it, man. I can't thank you enough for your time, your storytelling, your insight, whole humor. It, uh, it's a great pleasure for me to get to spend this time with you, man. Anytime, man. I'm always available. When you're putting that second book out, holler at me. We'll do this again. Okay, you got it. I told you guys it was great. I love hearing those stories about Flair. I mean, that dude, he did just have his 70th birthday, and it's miraculous. We got to get him on here, Travis. I got to have Ric Flair on here. Yeah, it's going to happen. I mean, I'll get him on here for sure. And I'd love to hear him recount some of these stories that everyone else tells about him all the time. I wish we could hear the stories that he can't tell. Because you know those are just epic stories. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of 
broadcasters probably have those types of stories, especially a guy like Jim. I mean, he, look, he flew all over the world with these guys. He saw them when the lights weren't on. That's what people, I think, don't realize with wrestling is it's they're basically like a football team. When they travel, it's all those guys on the plane together. And you can only imagine, especially in the 80s and 90s, what that was like. WFO is what it was like, man. And uh, someday there's going to be a book written about all that, and I cannot wait to read it. And I also can't wait to see the movie that whoever's going to make about Jim's life, that first book he was discussing, because i got to go get that book. Let's go get that book. You all go buy that book. It means a lot to Jim. And it means a lot to us. We appreciate so much you guys taking the time to listen to this thing. Uh, it's it's just so fun to get to do it. I learned so much from these awesome guests that Travis is able to book. Appreciate your hard work to get Jim. Thanks to Louise for being crazy enough to let us do it. Uh, certainly, we appreciate you guys. Uh, there's no reason to do it without you guys' devotion to listening to it. And it means so much to me when you guys mention it, whether it's on social media or it's in the airport or it's in a restaurant. Uh, when you mention the work that Travis and I have done on a podcast or a specific interview, it just fills up our tank, and we appreciate it so much. And I will remind you once again to thank anyone you see in uniform or if you see them wearing that hat that projects the fact that they're a veteran and fought for our country. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I'm so appreciative of our military. Thank you guys so much for preserving our freedom uh, at home and all over the world uh, your sacrifice matters and we are also appreciative of that we are free for a reason and we are able to live in the greatest nation in the world because of their sacrifice so thank you guys for that uh thank y'all for listening we appreciate it that's the marty smith's america podcast volume 45 we'll see you god bless you